Take a network break. Help yourself to some Thanksgiving leftovers and a virtual donut and join us for our weekly review of IT news. This week, we'll look at roadblocks on the Broadcom VMware acquisition, Google settling privacy lawsuits, a new Intel licensing scheme, and more. We're sponsored today by the Internet Society. Getting internet access from low Earth orbit satellites has great promise for addressing the digital divide, supporting disaster response, and creating new opportunities for communication. If you're curious about how these systems work, as well as the technological and policy implications, you can download the free white paper, Perspectives on Low Earth Orbit Satellite Systems for Internet Access by the Internet Society. Just go to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. That's internetsociety.org slash packetpushers to download that free white paper. And today's Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by VMware, dives into VMware's vSphere Plus. vSphere Plus allows you to operate your on-prem workloads and infrastructure as if they were a public cloud. It supports VMs and Kubernetes and provides admin, developer, and add-on services delivered via SaaS. You can hear all about that in the Tech Bytes that follows the news portion of the show. And last but not least, mark your calendar for December 13th for a live stream event with the Packet Pushers and sponsored Dell Technologies on DPUs and the future of distributed infrastructure. We're going to have six short, informative sessions on topics, including what network engineers need to know about DPUs, accelerating distributed workloads, how VMware's Project Monterey will affect infrastructure, and more. You can sign up for this live free event at packetpushers.net slash livestream. That's packetpushers.net slash livestream. All right, let's dive into the well, news. Well, lots, lots happening. Lots happening. <laughs> we haven't even started. We've got lots of <laughs> I'm stuff. I'm already exhausted. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the Internet Society thing, probably just a bit unusual. You probably haven't heard us, but um, they reached out to us and said they would like to get some of their stuff in front of our audience, and we said we're pleased to help them. Uh, so this white paper looks at at the space networking, da da da, da mm-hmm. um, but also looks at it from a social point of view because the Internet Society has a social remit. So the part of what it's talking about is are these good for underserved communities or not? Which is an interesting discussion, but it should help you give you some ideas on or a second opinion. We've talked a lot about space networking, and if you wanted a second opinion, this white paper might suit you. Um, and the other one is uh, the podcast, the Dell live stream, which I'm really looking forward to because Dell um, is getting big into DPUs and as part of their networking strategy. And I think it'd be interesting to see inside. So that you know, we're holding that in December. So if you sign up and then join us live at packetpushes.net slash livestream, that would be great. And maybe get some more insights on what's happening in the DPU space, but this time from a Dell perspective. Yeah, and DPUs are definitely an emerging technology. So if you want to sort of get some grounding in it, uh, we're trying to focus this live stream event for networking folks. Uh, I'd give it that networking angle. So yeah, check it out if you're interested. All right, let's do some news. First, UK and European Union regulators are putting increased scrutiny on Broadcom's $69 billion acquisition of VMware, uh, citing fears of anti-competitive behavior. The reviews could put the acquisition on hold for months or maybe even more than a year. Yeah, this is something that was originally Broadcom told investors that they didn't think there would be any problem. Now, obviously, it's been several months now. I think the original announcement was like in Q1 2022, like mm-hmm. six or nine months ago. And what's happened now is that the increasingly people are turning against tech and they're very concerned about the lack of competition. So mega takeovers like, you know, when EMC took out VMware 10 years ago, very different environment now. So the US government has announced that it's going to uh, lodge a second request, which usually indicates that they're setting up to block it. doesn't mean that they will, but most often they're actually saying that the government is going to set up to block it. Um, there's also the UK authorities have announced that they will conduct an inquiry. In other words, they haven't just signed off and said, yeah, that's fine, go ahead. They're actually going to stop and conduct an inquiry to determine if the competition will be impacted and Broadcom only filed its first set of paperwork for the EU Competition Authority in mid-November, that's on the 15th of November, um, asking for a rapid pass-through. 
but the general sense is that the EU will also refer this to an internal body uh, for a competition review. And so, the you know, this is pretty grim for VMware, I think, but it, it looks like all of the governments in, let's say, the Western world, because they're the only ones that I've got visibility on, mm-hmm. are lining up to say this may be a competitive problem and Broadcom may have a very difficult time. I mean, it does seem like it's getting increased scrutiny. Uh, and based on the Ars Technica story we read for this, uh, opponents of the merger are citing price increases as the primary concern. Um, I myself have a hard time seeing this as specifically anti-competitive. It's not like a consolidation of competitors uh, in the same space. Uh, there's no real opportunity for vertical integration with Broadcom's core products and VMware. So prices going up doesn't seem like a great reason for blocking this deal, but I guess they are getting additional scrutiny. Uh, under U.S. competition law, the main grounds for rejecting a competitive uh, rejecting a takeover are if the customer is injured by higher prices. So mm-hmm. usually that means, you know, if the two biggest players merge and then rise their prices, then consumers are impacted or been affected. And so that that is the most likely ground that the U.S. regulator will reject. In the case of the U.K., they have a much broader definition. Yeah. So, for example, you know, as you noted in here, uh, Qualcomm trying to take over ARM was rejected by the British government. Uh, NVIDIA um, trying to take over ARM, yeah. Sorry, NVIDIA, yeah. And in previously, Qualcomm had a bit of a go. <laughs> you know, right. And may yet have another go, we'll never know. But the U.K. government was able to veto that. Um, what I am concerned about is that VMware sort of remains in stasis. When the takeovers are announced like this, the company has to go into sort of like a hold still and it can't make any significant transitions in it. Like it can't acquire something very large. It can't divest divest any part of the business because that would change the valuation that's been in play. They can't make too many changes to the sales strategy or the go-to-market strategy. And so in a very real sense, VMware stuck with what it's doing until this situation resolves itself out one way or the other. And we're already seeing customers get a bit antsy with a lot of things in the technology industry and starting to say, we're paying too much. Now, part of that is the existing economy, of course, wider economy, but there's a lot of signals out there that customers are pushing back on VMware, Cisco, you know, and Dell and HPE to say, you know, you can't charge premium pricing for these products. They're commodities. We expect them to get cheaper, not more expensive. Right. Regardless of the fact that, you know, there's inflation and so forth, they should still get cheaper. And there's, and, and in previous recessions, technology did get cheaper. So people are reasonable to expect that. Yeah, I'm just going to, I guess, push back a little bit on that uh, price mm. increase argument because it's not two hypervisor companies coming together to no. uh, eliminate competition. It's a hardware company buying a software company and... Yeah, sure, Broadcom could raise prices, and we're anticipating that we will. But if VMware gets spun out on its own, there's nothing to stop it from raising prices either. So mm. I just mm. have a hard time seeing that prices are going to go up well, argument being being relevant it, here in this specific instance. Yeah, well, in this case, Broadcom has clearly stated that a condition that it will buy it and raise prices because yeah. it has to to justify the price. Right. So that would be regarded as bad for consumers and rejected so. on that basis, not yeah. because it's a competitive situation. It's also worth noting that this is the second largest acquisition ever. Um, the only one that's larger is Microsoft's proposed $75 billion purchase of Activision Blizzard, the games company. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Which um, is also getting regulatory it... scrutiny. I didn't throw it in here because it's gaming, but yeah, that's also yeah. potentially going to be kiboshed. Yeah, well, Activision Blizzard is different because the company's struggling. So financially, it's in dire straits. It's got a lot of problems with the government because it's produced games that have created... Uh, social division mm-hmm. in the U.S. and so that take out make that uh, that buyout is actually saving to some degree 
Activision Blizzard from itself, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. the Blizzard part, actually. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. When the original announcement came out, the people were saying, this is a reputation wash in the sense that Activision Blizzard is in such bad odour in various government circles and with customers that selling it to Microsoft, who's got a much better reputation, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How times have changed. <laughs> um, might actually dig the company out of the hole and they'll be able to make money out of it because of it, because nobody else wants to buy it. So because it's got such a bad reputation and it's too big to buy for most companies. So. Yeah. Well, I, I always felt like the Broadcom acquisition of VMware wasn't great for VMware in the first place. So if this does blow up, maybe it gives VMware some room to be a free agent again and continue to innovate and, and try to make a place for itself in the broader tech space as its market sort of slowly starts to dribble away into the public cloud and containerization and so on. Yeah, I, I think enterprise IT is going to be extremely profitable for another 20 years. So yep. you don't see IBM down on its luck, for example. So I know. mean, that's why Broadcom wanted to buy them against the whole reason. But yes, uh, uh, so it, un, without being under the wing of Broadcom, VMware has more opportunity, I think, to innovate, whereas Broadcom was buying them just to print money on the existing products. Be interesting. I'm just struggling for, you know, it must be difficult to be inside VMware right now. It's gotta be. Everything's got to be on a hold, <laughs> right. a standstill. So, yeah. that's, that's a difficult place. All right, uh, mm-hmm. links in the show notes. If you want more, we'll move on. Uh, Google has agreed to pay $392 million to settle lawsuits brought by 40 states in the U.S. over charges that the company continued to track user location after users turned off the location tracking features on their devices. Uh, the Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, who led the investigation, said that Google had been, quote, crafty and deceptive. Consumers thought they had turned off their location tracking features on Google, but the company continued to secretly record their movements and use that information for advertisers, end quote. Yeah, and record your movements even when you explicitly tell it not to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a whole bunch of these things. Now, to some extent, this is a political beat up. It's, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Drew, but my understanding is that attorney generals in the U.S. are voted in or require aim to get headlines or to win in a major case to set up their resume. Is it is it something like that? My understanding is that attorney generals get um, uh, mm. put in place by the governor. So they sort of the governor is a proxy by voting. If the governor wins the election, they get to appoint the AG. But yes, AGs definitely, you know, look to get big headlines and cover themselves in glory and money if possible. Uh, but mm. I, I'm all for them fighting big companies like Google when it comes to my <laughs> privacy, especially for something like this. So. Yeah, I think in this case, the key part is that Google has actually, uh, well, they called it crafty and deceptive or to, you know, outright mm-hmm. lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and this case would suggest, suggest that Google is willing to pay $400 million and accept the fact that the, the, you know, that the case must be correct in, in least in part or substantially. Right. And they would rather that this went away and not have any press about it. Um, but I think the main thing here is that the government is willing to take on the big tech companies. You know, for the last thirty years, the big tech companies here have uh, had, un, you know, no government oversight. They're Very on the little. internet. They're yeah. free of taxes. They're free of, you know, any of the social mores. You know, the content's not our problem. It's your, you know, it's up to you. You know, guns don't kill people. Google doesn't kill people. You know, Google and Facebook don't kill people. It's the content sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, we're not responsible for the content. What's increasingly becoming clear is that. You know, they've been fast and loose and very dodgy and the government's just giving enough signals. Now, remember in this case, this is justice. Justice comes after the crime has been committed. And the idea is that if you um, apply a penalty like this, this will stop companies like Google and Facebook and Apple and all the others from doing this egregiously and 
stop them from doing the worst of it because they don't want to be penalised like this. Right. I would say to you that $400 million isn't anywhere near enough. It probably needs to be a couple of billion to actually have that impact. I would agree, given the money that Google can make on advertising, that it should be a higher penalty. But the fact that it's almost half a billion dollars is significant and certainly, you know, Google shareholders will be taking notice. Um, also, just to clarify on how this work, uh, worked out, the investigation focused on two different settings in Google accounts. There's the location history, which you see on your phone, and web and app activity. Customers could turn off location history, but Google's web and app activity automatically has location tracking on. And if you don't know enough to go in the settings and turn that off as well, it continues to collect location data, even if your location history is off. Um, and that setting is included in the Android OS for smartphones, so your location and your, your uh, mm. where you are... Uh, uh, on your smartphone is, you know, some potential serious privacy implications there. Yeah. The one thing that I note here, Drew, is that the case is closed. So there's no surveillance here. There's no ongoing checks of Google. One of the things we know from Twitter, for example, is that Twitter is actually under an FTC order to maintain content. Right. And they are now in breach of certain things. That is a much bigger deterrent, I think, than just it saying, is. here's a 400 million fine, case closed, walk away, congratulations. I would like to see you know, Google get under a surveillance order for five years and if any signs of this come back, the penalty ranks up. So again, as I said, more slap on the wrist than anything serious. Well, as part of the settlement, Google is going to have to be more transparent about privacy settings and the data it's collecting about users starting in 2023. So I assume the AGs will be keeping an eye on that. But yeah, it's different from being under the continual oversight of a government agency like the FTC. Um, so hopefully the AGs will continue to pay attention on this and press Google uh, if they aren't living up to their agreements. Mm -hmm. uh, so speaking of tracking, uh, this July, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission reached out to the top 15 mobile carriers in the U.S. to get information about how those mobile carriers' policies uh, cover geo geolocation data, how long the data is kept, processes for sharing that data with law enforcement and third parties, and whether consumers are notified. Now, this September, the FCC published all 15 of those responses from the mobile carriers. We've got a link to that in the show notes if you want to check out your carriers up to. But the blog Pots and Pans, which covers the telco industry, also has a summary. And as you might imagine, customer privacy is not a top priority for most mobile carriers. <laughs> Some highlights <laughs> from the blog. Uh, Ten of the carriers said that the customers have no options for opting out of having their location tracked. And the amount of time that carriers retain uh, location data varies from two months to five years. Uh, T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon all sell and share customer data according to their responses to the FCC. Yeah, I think the challenge here is that this is not just a, a personal matter, although that's one way to look at it, and certainly for certain some people it would be a personal matter, but this is also a business matter in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Companies are buying and analysing that data to understand what customers and competitors are doing. This isn't just about, you know, buying dresses and shoes from retail shops or, you know, selling online products and finding out what customers are doing. This is also about collecting data on employees at an employer and then what websites are they browsing? What what Where are they going to on the internet that's related to their work? So if they can track down you as an employee and then know that you're, you know, check out that if this company's employees are scanning a particular website for a purchase, they know they might have to put more effort into selling you something because you're evaluating competitors and so forth. And they're buying this data to find out and... This is a business tool. So this is not just a personal privacy matter. And I've said this before. I just want to say it again. These people are collecting everything, all of your company's data, and a competitor can go and buy that data, analyze it, and use it for corporate espionage. How many sales are you getting? What products are yours are selling? You know, are you reaching customers? What ad campaigns are you doing that are being successful? And we'll copy those. That's all competitive business, you know, 
what stolen, you know, what we used to do corporate espionage, but it's done legally because it's being sold. And that's why you should care. And you should probably, you know, talk to, I don't know if your CEO knows about it, but if he realized it, maybe that would change things. Yeah. Uh, the thing that most alarms me about the geolocation data is that uh, the, the mobile companies, mobile carriers are saying that they are holding it uh, to respond to law enforcement requests for that data, as opposed to the old days when law enforcement would have to make the request and then they would go and look for it. Now they're just holding on to it and are ready to hand it over at the drop of the hat, which on, on one hand, you know, you can see reasons for that, but there are issues like now with abortion and people traveling to clinics, maybe out of state, uh, and then coming back to the state, law enforcement could ask for that location data and then try to prosecute people, things like that. So a lot of very sticky issues here. Yeah. Uh, yeah like I said, there's definitely a personal angle, but to my mind, the business angle is just Business angle large. is also important, yeah. Because mm. this is the network break and we're really focused on <laughs> On the business, yes. Your personal liberties are your problem, not so much my, you know, the network break's problem. I will step down from my soapbox now. <laughs> yes, please. Yes. No soapboxes here. Just snark. Just snark. <laughs> that's one thing we stand for, definitely. Yeah, that's right. I'll stand on that soapbox. <laughs> All right. Uh, links in the show notes if you want more details, including the uh, official responses from the mobile carriers. You can find it all at uh, packetpushers.net. Uh, Intel has announced a new pay-as-you-go option for Xeon Sapphire Rapids processors. They're going to give you an option to license the chip based on consumption. The consumption option is going to be available alongside your traditional licensing options. Yeah, this is interesting. We've seen so many people go to a pay-as-you-go licensing model. It's hard to imagine that CPUs, of all things, could move to this. Um, and I wonder how popular this will be with customers. But anyway, the four, Intel's upcoming fourth-generation Xeon Scalable Sapphire Rapids processors, that's their Xeon CPUs that were shipping in 2023, um, have a range of various special-purpose accelerators and security technologies. And not all customers will want them. And in the past, what Intel would have done is package them uh, in different ways and some chips would ship without them. And I think what Intel's trying to do here is they're saying, we're just going to make a production run and then enable the features that customers want. So it's actually cheap enough for them to manufacture the chips with everything on board and then just charge extra if they use them. Mm -hmm. uh, it, now, that was a, a popular way to do things when you were buying somebody's third-party IP to add a crypto accelerator or to add whatever. But what we now have in the production is this idea of chiplets. So there's a CPU, there's a bus, there's a security chip, there's a TPM, and they're all on the same uh, physical packaging, but they're all stitched together. So you find lots of small chips on a CPU die now rather than one big. And so I think what Intel's saying here is we'll just make one chip, reduce the production costs, get to scale quicker. And then, but more importantly, Intel's going to get a lot of data on who its customers are, what features they're actually using, and how they are getting there in the market. So if you look at the the image that's supplied with this, Intel's actually um, using a provider to take the request from the customer who will then send the license to the data center server. So Intel now knows the customer, the provider, knows what product, they know all that information, which is something they've never had before because mm -hmm. they used to just ship the CPUs. So remember what we said about tracking, Drew? This is also an example of that. Corporate tracking, they'll know who you are and track you. So if you start suddenly buying AMD CPUs, they're going to see the numbers at your site change. Mm -hmm. They're not going to know you have AMDs necessarily because that's not going to be reported in the licensing. But they'll suddenly see that, you know, customer Y who used to have a thousand Intel CPUs now only has 500. Why is that? Well, we need to get a sales rep out there. We know that this company who's selling them something is suddenly switching to a different brand and we need to go and have an argument with them and say, why aren't you selling our product type thing? I mean, yeah, customer... I Companies love to get more information about their customers, how they're using that product, because that does provide information for them that they think they can either use to 
adjust their product, adjust their pricing, or maybe uh, integrate with other data to learn more about the customer, whether the customer wants it or not. We've seen this consumption model happening everywhere, this uh, pay-as-you-go mm. consumption-based model, including, I think, HPE GreenLake. I wonder if Intel has seen HPE GreenLake having some success with this idea of, you know, you sort mm. of buy the device, but you don't necessarily use the whole thing, so you don't pay for the whole thing kind of a model. Companies seem to like it. HPE GreenLake seems to be having some success with it. So I guess Intel's like, yeah, let's give it a try. And if we can get more data about <laughs> our customers as a benefit, sure, why not? Hey, last thing I'll note about this, it was released this week, Last week, Drew, which is right in the shadow of the American Thanksgiving holiday. Which is... When no one's around. <laughs> uh, that's a I wonder, weird signal because if they were really excited about this, that's not the kind of thing you dump on Thanksgiving when no one's paying attention. No. If you actually do a search for it, you'll only find a couple of media outlets picked it up. So mm -hmm. there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we don't know what that signal means, but it's a signal, yeah. Yeah, maybe our customers are smart enough to work that one out. I guess so. <laughs> All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, the Internet Society. Uh, now that you can get internet access from space thanks to low Earth orbit or LEO satellites and companies such as Starlink and OneWeb, in 2023, more companies are planning to launch hundreds, even thousands more satellites to support broadband services. Uh, as these systems are being launched, now is the opportunity for all of us to help shape conversations and ensure that these LEO systems help build a bigger, stronger internet accessible to everyone. These LEO systems have great promise to help address the digital divide and connect the unconnected. LEO systems can also support emergency responders and help get critical internet access during natural disasters. So there's big opportunities on the horizon, but also questions. Are these systems going to be affordable to the people who need them the most? Will they have the capacity to support all the people who want access? Will they support open standards and internet, technology, internet technologies we care about? What kind of policy issues do they raise? How can we ensure competition? And what about the environment? The Internet Society, which is a global nonprofit advocating for an open and trusted Internet, dives into these questions in a new paper, Perspectives on LEO Satellite Systems for Internet Access. You can download this paper for free and share it with others by going to internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. Download the paper, Perspectives on LEO Satellite Systems for Internet Access at internetsociety.org slash packetpushers. And now back to the podcast. Uh, the U.S. and the U.K. are banning uh, the use of Chinese networking and surveillance equipment, citing national security-related fears as the grounds for their decisions. This is continuing an ongoing discussion we've had about uh, the inter intersection of politics and technology. Yeah, today, and it's a slow news week. <laughs> more politics. Uh, this is more just a note. Uh, so the U.S., uh, the U.K. particularly has banned video surveillance products. This is mainly targeting two companies, Hikvision, H-I-K-V-I-S-I-O-N, and Dahua, who uh, provide surveillance products, so cameras and so forth, and the UK has banned them inside of the government estate. So they haven't actually banned them in the country, just banned them on the government estate for fear that they represent a national security risk. Uh, at the same time, the US has actually announced an ex uh, extending an existing ban regarding the importation of any Huawei and ZTE products into the US. This isn't just a, you're not allowed to use them in government networks or you're not allowed to use them in telco networks, which is what it has been up to now. This is a full import ban of any Chinese networking products into the US. They are now fully excluded huh. from the country. That means private and public networks, right? Right. And so it's very interesting to see this sort of steadily ratchet up. And that's how government works. It makes a movement and then it makes a movement and then it, it keeps looking to see if it needs to make more because when the government makes a decision like this, it really has huge impact on, you know, telcos who've got Huawei or ZTE installed, and there's a lot of them in the US, mm -hmm. now have to get it out. They're now being forced to remove it. If they haven't been trying to sort of pretend it's not their problem, now they're in trouble because they can't get support, they can't get spares. So, you know, this is the impacts of these decisions and governments 
move slowly but inevitably in a particular direction. Uh, for the UK, I just wonder when we're going to see the DJI drones banned because they are surveillance equipment. Um, and I also wonder what would be a replacement for the DJI. They've been very successful with their drone products and I wonder, just wonder, if that's where we're headed. Mm, interesting. That's not something I considered having uh, banning Chinese drones because they have cameras mm. on them. Yeah. Well, they automatically upload the video to the cloud if uh -huh. they can. Uh -huh. So who yep. owns that cloud? Right. The Chinese, the, <laughs> yes. a Chinese company. The Chinese company is legally obliged to hand over data to the U to the Chinese government if asked, and they're also legally obliged to deny that they ever did if asked. <laughs> Well, I don't know if we have any members of parliament listening, but uh, maybe you've just given someone an idea to uh, propose a new, so. something <laughs> new in, this, yeah, in parliament. Yeah. yeah. Disclosure, I don't own a DJI drone. So. <laughs> and you're also not a member of parliament. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up with a surfing dog story. Uh, Meta has announced an AI agent that can play and win the board game Diplomacy. And I think the news angle here is that Diplomacy not only relies on, you know, traditional strategy like chess or go, but also on language and persuasion. To win diplomacy, you have to strike deals with other players, persuade them to take an action that benefits you as well as benefits them. Uh, Meta has released the code behind the AI agent, written a blog and paper about it, uh, if you're curious about it. I thought this was very interesting because, you know, it's not just about move here, move there, move there. It, it requires a lot of natural language processing, which is very difficult, it requires persuasion, it requires empathy when you're working with humans to try to strike these deals that this does seem like kind of an advancement in the AI space. Mm. And deception. The winners of deception uh, the, as well, the yes. game <laughs> deception is about deception, which is in some ways. historically not something AIs have been good with. Yeah. So it is a significant step forward. And I think the reason I, that's worth talking about this is that, in fact, diplomacy is a very limited game. There's only so many moves. So this is really an emphasis on AIs reading human intent. Right. And... Now, keep in mind that we're about 10 years into the AI will solve all human problems <laughs> rhetoric that we, you right. know, like, uh, yes. and this is the best that we can do, apparently. Like, um, and just to give you a negative point of view, this week there was a lot of discussion about AWS has lost $10 billion on the Alexa voice assistant division. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all the money that they've thrown into artificial intelligence and manufacturing hardware uh, and doing voice recognition and, and performing actions. And it was, you know, and sitting on the front page of Amazon's website for, right. for week after week after week. That yeah. That's prime real estate. All the money that they threw into that and they lost $10 billion on it. And the suggestion now is that they're going to ditch all of that. So basically the whole division will be thrown away and maybe they'll keep the voice, you know, some of it going, but most of it's going to go in the bin because it's just not, it's a massive loss maker for the company and it's currently scaling back um, as the market changes around that. Now, it's just, you know, really most people who are using those AI assistants are just setting timers and reminders and turning lights on and off. They're not buying products from the Amazon store. I mean, how many people would really trust the Amazon, you know, Alexa <laughs> to... <laughs> to get you the best price or to tell you that there's something wrong with buying this product. It'll just right, take a no, guess and ship it. Right absolutely now. not. Uh, it's, it's, so I suspect it's been a significant failure. And, um, and I also noticed that Facebook has abandoned its portal hardware platform as well. So its in-house AI assistant is also dead. Um, so we'll see, I guess. What does, that, what does it all mean? I don't know. I think AI is a miserable failure. And uh, we'll see what happens from here. 
Uh, I think AI is a tool that has great potential and also great danger. Like one of the warnings uh, in an article I read about this uh, natural natural language capability of this AI agent uh, that can win diplomacies that can also be used to, to do bad things to continue to help <laughs> drive division and misinformation uh, among humans, particularly if it's so good at mimicking human interaction. So yeah, definitely a potential Pandora's box here with this. Yeah, just be interesting to see how this plays out because it's very, you know, for a decade and the many tens of billions of dollars that have been lobbed into AI, we still don't have a clear utilization for it. That does not mean that one won't come. But at this point, AI looks more like crypto than, Oof. you know, <laughs> Oof. Oof. it could be. It could wow. be that we actually get very little out of it. There's something there, but we don't actually know what it looks like. Uh -huh. so if uh -huh. you figure how much money and effort has gone into AI, is it, like, this is general AI. I'm a big believer in narrow AI, like we've seen in Juniper Mist and AI Ops generally, where they very narrowly focus on a limited sure. use case functionality. I think that's fine. But the more general purpose, you know, hey, Siri, do this thing isn't going to, is is probably much longer off, maybe 20, 30, 40 years away. Maybe. We shall see. Maybe we can put that in the prediction book if uh, AI hasn't turned us all to goo in 20 to <laughs> yeah, 30 Yeah, I won't be years. here then, but... <laughs> I'll have shuffled off this mortal coin by then, I imagine. We'll, yeah. we'll just ask Alexa to set a notification reminder for us to, to do that. Yeah. <laughs> or your, your descendants. <laughs> All right, that does wrap up our news portion of the show. There are links in the show notes if you want to read more about it yourself. Uh, stick around for our Tech Bytes uh, conversation with VMware talking about vSphere Plus and private clouds. That's starting right now. Today's Tech Byte podcast, sponsored by VMware, dives into VMware's vSphere Plus. vSphere Plus lets you operate your on-prem workloads and infrastructure as if they were a public cloud. It supports VMs and Kubernetes and provides admins, developers, and add-on services delivered via SaaS. Our guest to walk us through vSphere Plus is Juan Orlandini. He is Chief Architect of Insight Enterprises, a solutions integrator. Uh, Juan, welcome to the podcast. So just give us some brief insight on how Insight Enterprises helps companies grapple with multi-cloud use, including that on-prem and public cloud mix. So Insight is a global solutions provider. Uh, we have about 15,000 teammates worldwide, and we have big presences here both in EMEA, APAC, and in North America. So what we bring to the table is a rather unique combination of capabilities. A large portion of our team is dedicated to architecting and designing and building modern infrastructure. And modern infrastructure for us includes everything from the hardware, so the compute, storage, networking, security elements, data protection, all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But also the layers that sit above that, which could be your automation platforms, your uh, Kubernetes management platforms, your uh, any of that infrastructure that is consumed by a developer or by systems, right? So those are all modern platforms. So we have a bunch of us to do that. And then we have a, a, another bunch of us that are actual true developers and can help teams navigate through the journey to DevOps or accelerating their DevOps uh, practices as they are, and even write applications for them, so modern applications. Uh, the uniqueness of that is that we don't have any competitor of ours that is at scale, all right? That's important. Uh -huh. uh, do this globally, all right, uh, that has both of those capabilities in-house. Okay. All right, so let's then pivot to vSphere Plus. Based on my reading, it sounds like we're talking about a blend of private and public cloud elements in here. 
So vSphere Plus, yeah. So, you know, a good way to think about it, vSphere Plus is a master of masters, right? So right. imagine <laughs> imagine that each one of your vSphere instances that you have today, regardless if it's one data center, multiple data centers, or even if you're running it in the cloud, they live independent of each other. You might be able to do things like SRM, so disaster recovery between the two of them, but they live independent of each other. Mm -hmm. So you have to manage them. It's really difficult. It can be very uh, challenging to scale some of the operations because you have to repeat similar patterns across multiple locations. And then you get drift because of that. Well, this location is going to change and all that other stuff, right? So vSphere Plus, one of the great benefits that it brings to you is that it can manage all of that stuff from a single location. So, so it's a bit like when you've got two data centers, you've got an active backup and you always find the backups never quite the same configuration as the original one. Some things are just a little bit different. And of course, at two o'clock in the morning in the middle of a crisis, you find out. And to some extent, this helps you stop that. It helps you to see the whole estate as one, whether it's two data centers on an active, active, active standby. And when you start moving VMs into the cloud, you can see them all from one management tool. Well, absolutely. That's definitely one of the things it can do. But it's actually a little bit better than that because uh, you can start by being proactive in your definition of uh, policy Mm. and push it down to any number of locations. So you define it in one place and push it down to the other and then monitor that state from the highest level at the very top, right? Mm. The other aspect to it is Mm. that it also comes with a change in how you finance your operations. So there's been an increasing demand from our clients to switch over to an OPEX model an op, uh, where you're not buying stuff. Uh, you, you're, you're using an operational expense model to fund mm-hmm. uh, the stuff, right? And the benefit for an OPEX model is that as the economy goes into kind of turbulent times that we're foreseeing here, it lets you navigate that and navigate where you're spending your money and dial back or dial up whatever you're needing. So if you need to dial down over here, you haven't mm-hmm. bought it. So you just not pay as much and right. you're good, okay. right? <laughs> and if you are using it, you pay a little bit more, but that's okay. Well, you're At least you haven't wasted the money that you didn't have, right? So, so I that- would assume that VSV Plus helps with the licensing as well, because tracking your licenses can get very clump very difficult. Like when you're doing using consumption-based licensing or OPEX model, you've got to trap what are you using so that you can pay for it. And you also have to validate it to justify the payment. So vSphere Plus comes with licensing monitoring? So vSphere before vSphere Plus already had that. Uh, and you monitored how many, uh, because they actually had enforced rules, right? Uh, you licensed so many CPUs or so many whatever yard, uh, yardsticks of measure that were being utilized. Mm-hmm. Um, now that same kind of tooling is actually being utilized to say, hey, you are consuming this much, so we're going to charge you this much. Or you've only consumed this little, so we're only going to charge you this little. So same tooling being reflected in a different consumption or a financial model. Okay. Do a number of these assessments for our clients, whether it's on the vSphere environment or in the public cloud environment. And sometimes even uh, the partner helps us fund these where we go and help a client manage their spend, right? And you would imagine it's like, why would one of these uh, partners actually pay us to help a client spend less uh, and buy less of their stuff? Well, it turns out that if I can uh, get their finances to be more aligned to the business value that they get, then they will actually increase the consumption of that because they're seeing the value of that spend. So what 
All right. So um, yeah, this is a mechanism to help us do that. And and if clients are um, very methodical and we can help with this, right. And figuring out how to do the financial operational side of the stuff, this uh-huh. maybe spend less, but more effectively. And over time you might end up buying more, but you're getting more value out of it. And that's a neat way to think about it. Right. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, all of the talk in the tech industry is about moving to public cloud. Public cloud is where everything is happening. But the fact that vSphere Plus exists uh, tells me that there's still an appetite for running workloads on-prem. What are you hearing from customers about the value proposition for on-prem when cloud is so readily available? Uh, Oh, man, that's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm here. (laughs) So public cloud is an amazing thing. All right. But not all workloads are ready for the public cloud and they might not be ready because they're legacy and architected for something that needs to run on premises and might not be ready because there is a financial difference of operating something in the public cloud versus on premises. And we can explore that here in a second or might not need the innovation that the public cloud brings. So think about the public cloud as being this uh amazing set of tools that help you innovate and digitally transform and create new products and services faster than we've ever been able to do. That's why they have any one of the large scale public providers has uh, 2000, 3000 different services that they offer everything from databases to machine vision Uh to security tools to you, you name it. They have lots of services, right? And they are principally designed so that developers can very quickly through a very uh, easy to consume set of APIs, go and build the next thing or add functionality to the thing that you already have. On-premises, doing something like that on-premises is a little bit harder because you're competing against an organization built of uh, uh, tens of thousands of PhDs versus your organization that probably doesn't have tens of thousands of PhDs, (laughs) right? (laughs) And that's just the way it is, right? So what you look for is for partner organizations that bring some of those capabilities on-premises. The challenge with that, though, is that the rate of change is very, very high in the public cloud because of tens of thousands of PhDs. Mm -hmm. On-premises, here's a good analogy that you're probably going to like. Now, when something first comes out, it's a box. And then you attach a bunch of PhDs next to it, right, to manage that box. And then over time, the vendors figure out how to pack the PhDs into the box. And you can maybe (laughs) stop using as many PhDs yourself because the box comes with PhDs. All right. (laughs) The public cloud is a box with a bunch of PhDs, right? And sometimes. yeah, Sometimes yeah, yeah. I also think of the the public cloud as a very immature platform, and uh, often it's not ready for the prime time, and things are released well, very very early, and they're often not fit for consumption, and that's why it needs so many. So there's two sides to that coin, but like, I take your point. Right? Uh, yeah, and absolutely there is. And but you know what? That's yeah. true of on premises uh, products as well, right? Some yeah. of, one of the values that we do is we have a uh, a, a very large uh, set of labs. Uh, we call them research and innovation hubs where we bring in the products from our partners and they tell us, hey, we just made the coolest thing ever. And then we find out what they really made. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it really is the coolest thing ever. Sometimes it's barely immature and needs a little bit more time in the oven. And that's okay, right? And that's fine, right? Public cloud is no different. It just happens to run the compute somewhere else, all right? So what vSphere is doing, though, what VMware is really doing is bringing you some of the tried proven stuff that's the box with a PhD baked into it, 
into a model where you can run that on-premises or in the public cloud or have an and statement where you're running it both in the public cloud and on-premises at the same time. And I can imagine there are use cases where I would want, because of reasons like data sovereignty or the need for low latency or some other use case that I actually need to have it in a private data center or some kind of edge uh, location. Yeah, that's part of it. The other one, too, is uh, back to that point of the workloads might not be ready for the public cloud. You might just want to be able to run it in a public cloud, but in a way that's very similar to how you ran it on premises Mm -hmm. or even have portability between the two because of DR as an option, or maybe uh, you want to have replication or whatever it is. So having an and statement is where it's really the most powerful. It's a data center and the public cloud and the edge, right? So if I'm already a VMware vSphere shop, what's the incentive for me to go to vSphere plus why would I need it? It becomes more and more appealing as your organization starts moving to an OPEX model, right? If your CFO is say buy buy everything on an OPEX model, do it now, you're probably (laughs) gonna wanna go do that now. And we actually, a lot of organizations are doing that, right? Uh The other thing that's gonna make it very appealing is if uh, you run multiple locations, whether they're edge, multiple data centers, multiple cloud instances or whatever, and they run as independent of vSphere instances, having this single manager of managers thing, uh, that that really helps you at, at least start with the visibility portion of it where you can start seeing, hey, what am I doing across my estate, whether it's a global or regional or whatever it is, and then start managing things a little bit better. But And then from there, you can start taking advantage of some additional capabilities of vSphere 8 or uh, that just got announced uh, recently, right? They're, they're adding additional functionality, uh, using the same analogy, making more PhDs into the box, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and some of those PhDs know Kubernetes, presumably. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. still saying and those PhDs are there to keep it running and so it doesn't fall down flat. But yeah, go on. Yeah, let's... let's, let's. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it, it's actually part of the PhDs yeah. that they did add to it is through the Tanzu thing. Right. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Is now yeah. you can run both virtual machines and containers, containers uh, yeah. side by side. All right. And, and, and that's a huge value, actually. We should have mentioned Tanzu because that's a big part about, in fact, the vSphere 8 announcement and its support for DPUs and then microservices and the Tanzu integrations get a lot tighter there. So having your vSphere uh, infrastructure much more unified makes it more practical or more likely that you'll have a successful Tanzu deployment if you're going that way for containers. Yeah, that's exactly right. You mm-hmm. know, so I do a lot of client briefings and client uh, engagements where I'm talking to a lot of the leadership in, in our client organizations. And I'm starting to see the emergence of uh, a way of operating infrastructure that is uh, built on some of the concepts that come from CNCF, uh, the mm-hmm. Cloud Native uh, Computing Foundation. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of a evolution of what we are actually kind of already seen from some of the big uh, uh, big innovators in the industry. So people like Starbucks and Git Labs and mm-hmm. people like that. What they built was a, either a platform engineering team or some others call it an internal development platform, those kinds of things, where you have a set of 
of your smart people that are spending their time building a platform or set of services that your developers can then consume. Uh, and the way you expose that to them is through an explicit API boundary <laughs> where you say to the developer, hey, if you want to build a new app, you're knock yourself out. Here's the APIs that are available to you. Right. And then the platform engineering team or the internal development platform team or whatever that team calls it can then build the infrastructure underneath it, whether it's containerized infrastructure, virtualized infrastructure, compute from Dell, Cisco, HP, Lenovo, it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, they all bring some unique value. Uh, but to the developer, that gets abstracted away from them because that's sausage making. They don't need to worry about mm. platform engineering team can worry about that stuff. And this is a consistent trend right across the industry right now is reducing the operational load. That's right. And the, for, for a very wide definition, the complexity, moving tasks away from your level three to your level two, down to your first line help desk, giving them automations to go, is it working? Is this, you know, that sort of stuff. And this unified tool really, for me, is much more about reducing the day to load, reducing the day to day load on how much complexity it is just to sustain this stuff every day. So what you have to have is some flexibility in your framework that you operate under to acknowledge that the technical debt's going to happen. We just need to figure out how to minimize its impact down the road. Which ties us back to VMware having that support for VMs and for Kubernetes, seeing as containers seems to be or whatever, yeah, comes down the road. Right, exactly. All right, I want to break in because we at we are at our time limit. Amy, just checking in to make sure we hit all the notes we need to hit. Oh, I was really enjoying Juan's stories. Can we just keep going? <laughs> <laughs> you, you can bring him back for another one. Absolutely. Okay, we'll do that. Right, just let me know. Happy to do this. All right. Well, that does wrap up the time we have. Uh, thank you, Juan, for joining us. And thanks to VMware for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.